You are listening to the Green Majority Podcast. Thank you so much for downloading our show. If you appreciate what we do, you can send us an email, send us a nice message on social media. We always appreciate hearing from you. Uh, but also, another way to do that is to become a member. You can actually uh, directly support us. Uh, just a few dollars a month is all it takes. Uh, our average and recommended donation is about five or six bucks. Uh, but you can choose the number that works for you. And uh, you can do that at Patreon, which is patreon.com slash majority. Thank you in advance. We very, very much appreciate your help. And now enjoy the show. Welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here live at CIUT 89.5 FM on Friday, August 4th, or possibly on one of our very, very appreciated community radio partners all across the country, internationally now as well in the United States, and of course, our very international podcast audience, uh, of which I believe Stefan will update us with some fun facts uh, (laughs) at some point. Uh, Quick overview of the show, and then I'm actually more or less handing over to Stefan for the majority uh, of at least the the direction of today. Once again, uh, Stefan went away for two weeks, and then he's just doing all the work for two weeks. So that's really fair. Right, yeah. I've come back with uh, with like like a storm. Yeah. I'm just a body in a seat and a, you know, that's about <laughs> it. A couple of sarcastic comments. I'm also uh, going to be finishing my essentially dedicated portion today is on a topic that generally speaking, this type of thing I would leave for a bonus show. Uh, but I just feel like there's so much to unpack here that we're going to make it a full section. I'm going to be talking about a press progress article about the Justin Trudeau interview with Rolling Stone. Uh, and it's got some pretty despicable stuff in there that I think is quite revealing, uh, that I think is worth discussing at least what the potential, uh, implications could be, uh, from that as far as a window into Mr. Trudeau's soul. Uh, we're going to have an interview in the middle section as well, which I'm going to let Stefan uh, preview when he takes over for me in just a second. And then uh, also previewing what Stefan's going to be doing basically just because I like hosting right. uh, is we're going to talk about a topic that I intentionally pushed off for two weeks because it just stresses me out a lot. And I feel like I've had two weeks of running a start here. And so I feel like we can do it, which is unfortunately a very sad report that uh, environmental defenders, activists and protesters the world round are being murdered at record rates. Uh, that will be our starting topic. Uh, we're going to start heavy and then, Okay, it's still heavy at the end, but there's going to be a lot more sarcasm and humor at the end. Well, there we go. So we're just like starting heavy, staying heavy. So it'll be aware of that. It'll become more humorous throughout the show. Okay. All right. That's (laughs) that's something at least. It's like a submarine full of comedians. Right. You're staying at the bottom of the ocean. Ah, okay. But the longer they're down there, the more jokes they can write. Ah, okay. All right. Although that at some point, they're, they're, they're like, uh, this metaphor is going to get yeah. lost. I'm going to pull a Costanza and end on a high note. Stefan, the floor is yours. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, so in the, so the middle section of the show, just to, to jump off that first, uh, last week we got an email during the show being like, you guys should cover Transform TO, uh, which I had a little bit a couple weeks ago, but not to the extent it probably deserves. Uh, and, then I, and then my thinking was, well, uh, I know some things about Transform TO, but do you know who knows more about Transform than I do? Uh, Dusha Sridhan. Sr- 
Sreetheran? Sreetheran, yes. I got the I got the name. I got it. Um, it's funny because I had said it right three times, and then of course, as I'm going for it, I mess it up. Uh, but uh, who is the uh, climate change campaigner uh, with the Toronto Environmental Action? No, Toronto Environmental Alliance. There we go. Uh, of T, uh, we're going to be talking about Transform To. Sort of what makes it uh, it both an interesting and different type of uh, climate change uh, bill, um, or not even a bill, I guess, as a climate change. Is there a word for this? Plan. Plan. Climate change plan. What makes a different climate change plan uh, and and what, uh, and what where it stands now and sort of it as a sort of example of a larger and more interesting uh, – not more interesting, but larger sort of trend around environmental campaigning uh, and, and, and what we might see in other cities as, as they move forward to try to come up with similar types of plans. Uh, but as, uh, as, as Saren so kindly introduced first, uh, off the top of, the, uh, off the, top of the, the show, we are looking at Canada – to some extent, uh, but then also uh, as an, an extension, uh, sort of uh, this the, Canada as a sort of a, as a beginning step to talk about sort of what is happening across the world. And part of the reason why we're doing it this way is there's a level of which Canada really likes to tell itself that it is amazing, um, and especially within sort of uh, within foreign policy, you know, the the, the Canadian uh, the course is always that we're into, we're into peacekeeping and um, and you know and, and we we do our we do our due do duty of to provide sort of funding for for good projects and uh, a lot of sort of positive uh, you know we say a lot of positive words about the work we sort of do and the influence Canada has worldwide, uh, but and there's always a little bit of a of a of a, of a not. Maybe not, 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 a, not a snicker, but a sneer, perhaps, at this uh, from from a percentage of, of those of us who sort of have a wider lens of what C, of what uh, what Canada does, and and the reason part the major reason why this is is because of Canada's in massive massive industry in resource extraction, um, and the and the inherent and 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 not all, the inherent difficulties of resource extraction aside, the sort of more consistently dangerous ways that the resource extraction companies end up interacting. With the with the uh, local populaces, um, an example of this is a is a Canadian mining company, uh, silver mining company specifically called uh, Tahoe Resources, uh, which owns Esco Escobal Mine in Guatemala, and and there, it's a pretty big organization. It's, it's a, it, this, this mine is extracting three hundred and fifty million dollars of silver uh, last year, and so it's a pretty this is a pretty large organization. It isn't some sort of small little thing, um, and in these types of organizations exist the world round. Uh, you know, the, you know, we have we we are on UFT campus, which has multiple organ- places named after after mining companies, basically, or after after mining barons. So this is a uh, this is a, definitely a Canadian phenomenon to some extent, and 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 and, and what's happening even in this one part, which is places that Tahoe was granted a twenty five year license uh, to exploit land uh, where thousands of families sort of farm. And so this is this is land that that is being used and lived off of uh, by uh, by 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 people who have been there for you know for centuries. These are these are people who have you know who were who have been there forever. Uh, and the government sort of comes in and gives away this license, which you know we see again. This is not the, the parallels here are pretty obvious with what we see with the different pipeline battles here in, in, in Canada, and that these are lands that are that are that are lived on by indigenous peoples, which are being just given away by the state government as if they owned it, um, and. And so this is, and, and then of course, and again, same. The, the parallels are so obvious because in 2016, uh, there was a suspension uh, to a suspension order was put in to prove that the water safety was uh, was 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 quality here. So you know these are this is a mining company, this is mining extraction. This is a dirty industry almost inherently. Uh, and so if you do not respect the amount of work put in to keep these things safe, they will things will go wrong. 
Um, and, and more often than not, when you're just trying to make as much money as possible, that's where you end up. Uh, and, and so, and so, you know, Water wasn't being wasn't wasn't being protected, uh, and the, the suspension order was put in place. But again, some of the biggest problems of these sort of things is when a company of this size comes into a place like Guatemala, they end up having an enormous amount of power. Uh, and you see, you can see this in um, and there's another much another famous case uh, case like about 20 years ago uh, with Texaco, uh, which now which, which rebranded to one of the other major oil companies. I have to, I have to check in which one um, in which they basically same sort of thing. They were just, they were, they were destroying the land. They were, they were suspect, they were sued and they just ignored the suit. They just, they're just ignoring the, the, the country that they're part of is that they're just ignoring that government entirely uh, because they don't have to pay attention to it because they have so much enormous power from as an outside force. And the same thing happened here. You know, they got a suspension uh, and it was, it, and it was ignored. Um, and which, of course, has now led to this before beforehand this, but escalated sort of tensions in the region. And since 2010, uh, at least 41 activists have been killed in Guatemala, uh, and eight in, Esco- in the Escobar community specifically. Um, and and the community has has very consistently shown uh, to be against this 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 agreement. You know, they've they've voted against it multiple times. Um, there, uh, days after the license was granted in 2013, seven protesters were shot outside of the mine. Uh, you know, this is not, this is, this is, this is not, this is not, you know, the lovey-dovey Canada coming in and, and, and supporting everything and it's great. Um, and it should be noted that some of the money that, that Canada even includes as money they give to other countries is things like this. It's supporting Canadian businesses in, in other countries. And so, you get examples of this where you know where we are telling ourselves, and then you like. Tr- I, I, what I really would like to see is someone try to explain uh, the sort of the, the sort of way we sort of see ourselves here um, uh, to someone like uh, Luis Fernando Monroy, uh, who is a uh, who's a youth environmental activist uh, in, in 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 Guatemala, who was shot three times in the face at close range, um, and. He he, he he survived, uh, but still receives threatening messages via social media. You know, thugs have come in and, and, and have scared, his, have like, have sort of pushed him and his family around. Um, his younger siblings had to leave school. Uh, you know, he describes the harassment as constant, uh, and the quote is exactly: "The fear, is, the harassment is constant. The fear is there, but I will resist until death. We have the right to a healthy environment and clean water. This is a struggle for life." And Try to combine these conversations. Try, like, try to to reconcile these two conversations, and and you realize the where that sort of disconnect I think happens with a lot of those of us who are sort of are are are, are within Canada and are trying to pay attention to what's going on in the world, and and, and sort of reconcile the sort of lovey dovey note that's you know that that we try to put ourselves in, and and this as well. You know, this is this is as much a part of what Canada is about than all of the good things we talk about, um, and and unfortunately this. Um, this uh, th- this is being supported by the government itself. The government has deployed troops uh, with arrest warrants for anti-mining activists. Uh, they've detained dozens just arbitrarily for months. Um, they, the this the the mining company funded a new police station near the mine um, to, as a way to as a way to obviously to, to, to sort of push back against against protests. Um, it's intimidation. Know. It's it was it's hundred percent intimidation. It's, it's it was worse than intimidation. It's 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 harassment, right? It's 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 straight up. They're, you know, they're 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 actually attacking these people. Um, and 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 this one instance act, it plays into a, a a much larger uh, world. 
in a much larger sort of conversation. Um, because despite that, you know, despite the fact that Guatemala is one of the most perilous places in the world for environmentalists, um, that doesn't mean it's the only place where it's perilous to be environmentalists. Uh, in a second article, uh, also from the um, from the Guardian. Uh, is uh, about about sort of the more the wider spread of 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 this kind of experience for environmentalists, especially especially within uh, within within South America, South America, um, because we're looking at um, you know we had a, we, had a, we, were, we covered this last year about how last year it was like it was, it was understood as a very very bad year for environmentalists and land defenders across uh, across the, across the world, uh, but this year is 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 really is really just as bad. There's uh, activists, uh, the activists and wildlife rangers and indigenous leaders are dying at a rate of four a week uh, across the world, uh, with a sense around the world that anyone like so. This is clearly creating a experience in which we're believing that this can just happen, uh, and that's okay. And, and and it's these it's these it's these major corporations that are coming in and sort of and sort of putting in this amount of money that is allowing for this sort of to occur. Uh, you know, you can sort of see it as sort of you can sort of you can you can frame it to yourself if you like as as sort of these are other places where other things are happening. But you cannot, uh, with if you look into the where the if you follow the money, not trace it back to to us and and, and what we are doing and, and the amount of support we are providing for for our own businesses. You know, the Toronto is known as the as the mining capital of the world uh, because most of the major mining companies uh, exist when operate out of the TSX. Like this is the Canadian economy. Um, and so, and so, you know, this is we're looking at a, a world in which two hundred people, two hundred environmental activists, and wildlife rangers and indigenous leaders uh, were killed in twenty sixteen, uh, which is double the number that were killed five years ago. Um, and in only the first five months of this year, we've had ninety eight killings already. And so, this is this is an, an increasing trend. Um, and 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 and, the, and if you trace it back again, the the people who are doing this are not. You know, are not you know local. Whether or not they are local people, they are being hired and paid for by uh, corporations or state forces. You know, these are these are these are people who are directly being connected to the companies that are trying to make these things happen. Um, and so. Oh, Sorry. when you're ready. Okay, go. Um, I, I need a minute. You oh, okay. finish up your thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and you know, and this is this is a and this is a systematic assault. You know, this is this is this is quite quite obviously a and it's consistent. And, and what's interesting about it is it's not. It's not that it's not it's it's not that it's not happening here. It's that when it happens here, it takes a slightly different form. You know, it, it's, it happens here. It's the form of of you know of indigenous land being being taken up by pipelines and and in the state in a way in which sort of you know maybe no one is actually murdered, but they are certainly feeling the effects of mercury poisoning um, down the stream, or uh, or their water is still being tainted, or they're being just systematically displaced as uh, from from their current from the current le- le- current living. And so all of these things are may not be as as directly immediate perhaps as um as 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 the sort of the sort of types of things that but the um but it's still it's 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 more of a matter of scale maybe than it is actually than type um and and you know because it, something that would happen here is a would be a much bigger deal for these companies and because these companies actually can be able to count here that's the last thing about this is that one of the things about this is that the, it, Canadians have the ability to hold these companies to account in a way that these other countries do not have like Guatemala cannot hold uh te- um 
this company, uh, Tahoe, to an account in the same way that Canada can, which is why they're facing compensation claims in Canada. You know, three victims have already settled out of court uh, um, so far in Canada because because of the fact that that is where they can actually get reparations. They can actually get response from the gut from from, the, from these places. You know, Tahoe can ignore a uh, a local uh, co- a local company or local sorry a local court saying you know stop poisoning this water, but they have a much harder time ignoring it in here in Canada. So yeah. you want to jump in? No, I just. And to clarify, what I meant by I needed a minute was not I wasn't ready. It was yeah. I need more than a second. <laughs> I needed at least a minute. Okay, so I made three quick notes here. We're basically out of time. I don't want to eat in too much into the rest of the show. So I apologize if you have to play this back and like slow it down after the fact. I'm going to cram all this in really quick because it's just three quick points I think are super important here before we go to break. Uh, one of them is uh, the idea of this sort of pretty picture for Canadians. Thank you uh, to our guest, Occasional Barbara, who emailed me later to correct my long-running bring-up and then confusion about the facts about uh, the issue around asbestos and Canada. She did actually reply to me and let me know what the law was. So I now know I have to stop guessing on air. <laughs> uh, but thanks for that, Barbara. Uh, was that, yes, in fact, Canada is still, uh, it, it, asbestos is not banned, but it's still, it's proposed to be banned. So they're working on it. Uh, in fact, our guest probably is nodding at me as well for, for confirmation of the same thing. So this is one of those other examples where, you know, it's fine in Canada because we, we're not using it here, but we're totally fine mining it and sending it to other people, right? So it's this idea that, you know, Canadians don't really want, if they, they don't really want to see justice. They want the appearance of justice. And that's something I'm going to be coming back uh, to talk about when we get to our Trudeau section. But largely speaking, a lot of people are satiated with, hey, we banned it here. And it's not that they don't care what happens elsewhere, but they're they're fine being willfully ignorant about what what the con- the, uh, the external, the external to Canada consequences of a lot of these decisions. It's something people don't want to know. Um, the idea that it couldn't happen here, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> I mean, it just can't happen here now. But I mean, we're talking about companies where, again, I'm not accusing the CEOs and I have no idea. I don't know what's in their brains, but I'm not accusing them of like knowingly. I mean, it's possible too, but I'm not saying that they are. I don't know uh, that they're like consciously saying, hey, you know, we'd get away with this. and We'd just go pay somebody off to murder somebody. That's not how this works. Usually my assumption about how this works is they put pressure on their local people to go do something. They're all contractors. You know, they, hey, I don't care how you get it done. Get it done. Here's a $10,000 bonus in it for you if you get it done. And the guy goes, hey, I can spend 50 bucks American to go get somebody killed. They're not going to ask any questions how I got that lease for that land. And then I keep, you know, whatever the rest of the money it's gross, but we're obviously see the impacts of it. So I see that as only sort of one or two real options here, because if the companies really cared, they would put a stop to it. And we know it's happening and they're not, they're sort of evading it. Uh, the last thing, and I know we could dig into each of these things really quickly. I just sort of, they were, they, they jumped out at me and I just wanted to sort of put them out there. Uh, we could come back and talk about uh, a lot of this stuff. But the last thing I want to just mention before we go to break here is this idea, because I mentioned a few weeks ago, and I want to be clear, people understand what I mean now that we're talking about this, where a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the idea between, you know, maybe we need to, to sort of take a deal a little bit with the mining companies in the sense that we're not the, the deal that a lot of people want us to take with the oil companies, which is, hey, they're not going anywhere. So why don't we just work with them to improve their habits as much as possible? So this is what I was talking about. I was not saying that there's not problems for mining, to be clear. Uh, I think there's hideous problems for mining. The problem is there's not a current alternative to mining for the things we need to do. There is an alternative to oil. So I think that we need to be, whether that means they change their business models or they simply go out of business, the oil companies need to cease to exist or they need to cease to be oil companies. Um, there is no alternative route to that, right? We have an alternative to oil. We need to get off that alternative oil. We don't have an alternative to metals. And right now, all of the solutions to everything, never mind all the toys people like playing with, are based on mining. So in, mining is the area where we need to be going and creating, demanding accountability and working with them so that they're not destroying people's lives and they're not destroying the earth. But we had to work 
worth them to improve what they're doing and quickly, uh, as opposed to oil, which just needs to go. And I just wanted to clarify my position on that in case anyone heard both of these episodes and thought there was some cognitive dissonance there. That is my position on the issue. Uh, so we're going to go to break now. Uh, Megan is here. Megan's going to tell us what our music break will be. And then we'll be back with our special guest from T to talk about Transform TO. Uh, don't go anywhere. And uh, where are we going to listen to, Megan? With defeat. All right, we are back. I'm your host, Saren Case. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful community radio partners, or possibly, and I'm biased, but I would say the best ways on our podcast, because you get some extra stuff that way. You also get a bonus show, which we'll be doing afterwards. I haven't decided what the bonus topic is. Well, I kind of is, but I won't spoil it just yet. I have to ask Stefan if he likes it or not. Uh, but without uh, eating up any more of your time, I'm going to once again hand over to Stefan to actually be the interviewer today. So take take. Uh, yeah, th- well, thank you so much. Uh, so yes, as we mentioned earlier, we were asked to sort of discuss this, uh, and Dusha was so kind uh, to join us. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, and so you're, again, the uh, climate change campaigner uh, at the Toronto Environmental Alliance. Um, and so obviously you've been focusing uh, a fair amount of your time, at least, on, on TransformTO, given that it is like, you know, somewhat, you know, Toronto's seminal climate policy. Yeah, this has been a focus for me for over two years now. So uh, it's been intensive. There's been marathon council meetings, you know, sitting there for hours watching it. Yeah, it's (laughs) It's, been intense. (laughs) You've now given up all interest in other sports because council is now your sport. We like to think of it as a soap opera. Oh, okay. All right. So there's a lot of drama on council floor and you see people, you know, get into very hysterical about certain things. But yeah, it's intense. That's the most believable thing I've heard all day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so the start off let's given that it, it's important uh, within uh, climate uh, as, a, as a climate policy uh, can you sort of sort of frame out what transform to is and what it's trying to do sure so um, transform to is the new climate change plan for the city um, and they developed it in two portions actually so the first part of the plan is uh, um, looking at the strategies we need to take in order to reduce our emissions by 30 percent by 2020 and then the second portion of the plan which is a long-term piece is reducing the actions we need to take to reduce our emissions by 80% by 2050. And so for anyone who doesn't know, the biggest you know sources of emissions in our city are really transportation buildings and then waste to a lesser extent. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but TransformTO is like most uh, city-based climate uh, f- f- focused on like what they call scope three emissions, uh, which is emissions directly de- created by the city or within the city's borders, correct? Yes. Okay. So it's not actually calculating some of the upstream com- uh, emissions, which is an issue, but um, at this time they're focusing at what we're producing within the city boundaries. Right. And, and what they have more control over, to be fair. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. So that's great. Thank you very much. Um, and so with this in mind, um, they sort of went out and, and made this a little maybe not what people would fully presume as a normal type of climate. You know, people imagine climate policy to be going out and creating, you know, just like, these are the easiest ways to reduce emissions. That's the most important thing. That's how we want to do this. That's it. Uh, but they've, uh, the trends from Tio really seems to focus a bit on this idea of co-benefits. Can you sort of explain what that means? Sure. So I think um, it's probably one of the strongest features of this plan. It's really looking at how communities can directly benefit from the actions we take. So for example, if you're going out and you're um, retrofitting buildings, for example, there's really opportunities to create good jobs out of that, to improve quality of life for people. Um, And I think they've really considered how this would relate to other priorities that the city has, like poverty reduction. So we know that, you know, there's a number of things. And when it comes time to making funding decisions, we're competing with a lot of other issues. So I think the interesting thing about this plan is that it's looking at how can we help achieve a number of priorities for the city. 
Great. Um, and 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 so and so and so. What's interesting about this is I feel like it almost has it almost has three heads to some extent. You know, it's got the it's got the piece of it. It's very clearly like, hey, we are looking at trying to understand um, what. Uh, what the climate piece is, uh, and then it has a sort of piece of sort of social impact um, and, and positive reduction. But then it has a third piece of actually business cases. There, you know, it, it, the, if anything, Toronto has has one of the most interesting actually pieces of of Toronto as a whole is actually the uh, Toronto Atmospheric Fund, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which is uh, which is a part of the which is an organization in Toronto that is being that it basically has its own independent source of funding and its only mandate is to reduce uh, is to reduce carbon, but has been using that time to prove a lot of the actual business cases. For um, for for carbon moves and and Transfrontier sort of takes off a bit of that um, and so can you sort of like how does it look like how do they sort of design the sort of business cases for these projects? Sure, so they're looking at economic impact on businesses for sure, but I think what they've done a great job at is actually highlighting the economic benefits of this plan. So one of the concrete things I can point out is you know it's going to create three hundred thousand job years in our city, um, and that's you know bringing a, a range of different businesses and different activities that they're going to do, but they really highlight how these actions can have a number of benefits for communities. Great. Um, and, and, and so and you, you, you sort of got to uh, briefly, you briefly mentioned earlier about sort of the, uh, about, you know, the retrofitting of buildings. And can you sort of give us a sense of sort of a more holistic understanding? So th- there's these three pieces that they're looking at, but can you sort mm-hmm. of dive deeper into that as a way to sort of explain what this whole looks like? Sure. So there's a number of really concrete targets that they set out, and one of them is retrofitting 100% of buildings by 2050. So if you think of that, that's quite bold for our city, and that means, you know, changing the way we live in a way. So um, retrofitting that many buildings is going to require a lot of um, concrete skills, so we're going to actually develop a job force that can take this on. Um, And there's a number of other actions that... one of the things that we've kept hearing about in the city is how social housing's crumbling. So for poverty reduction activists, this is something they're really concerned about. Um, and for us, it's something where we're like, okay, this plan could actually help us retrofit those buildings and make sure, you know, thousands of homes don't close down. I think in the next couple of years, they've said, you know, for up to 4,000 homes could close and people would be left homeless. And if you think about it... You, there's a waiting list to get into social housing as is. More and more we're hearing about how the city's not affordable to live in. So if we come with a climate plan that's, you know, just going to increase costs for people, people are like, how is this helping us in any way? So it really has to tackle people's other priorities about security, jobs, income, all that kind of stuff as well. And I think this is a plan that's really focused on doing that. Awesome. Um, and and I, 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 what's interesting about that piece is that it reminds me of an organization that I'm just gonna that I've plugged at least three times on the show. I'm gonna do it again because I like them so much. Uh, it's called Building Up. And and what Building Up uh, does is they've 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 sort of proven the 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 business model actually for this this kind of retrofit. Uh, and and so you nod. So if I briefly, uh, if I, if I, in some way, mis uh, explain exactly what they do, please jump in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my understanding of what they do is that they, uh, they, they, their main thing is they retrofit uh, toilets. They, they, they change out toilets into low flow toilets. Um, and 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 they get a contract. It, the, the biggest contract most recently, I believe, was with the, Ham- the government of Hamilton, mm-hmm. uh, which had which gave them a, a certain amount of uh, of buildings to do this retrofit with. And they sort of combine this. Uh, they they have a training program for the people who live in the area. Uh, where they're doing the retrofits, uh, and they and they they pay them for their work as they get trained to do these sort of skilled labor uh, of retrofitting uh, from the money that they will event that the 
that the owner of the building will eventually save from the low cost toilets. So they, it, it's it's kind of a brilliant business model of they get some of the money up front uh, from the money that they will eventually save uh, from replacing it, and they use that to actually pay the people to train them up and actually do this. So it's it's it sort of is tackling all three of these pieces. Um, does that does that, does that roughly explain what, what building up is like? Yeah, building up is one great example. And actually, my current role, uh, we're doing a bunch of research looking at examples across North America as well as in Europe, because there's actually been a number of projects where other jurisdictions are much further ahead, mm. um, especially using community benefits agreements to actually negotiate some of that so that when there are projects coming in, we have the opportunity to leverage those benefits directly for communities. One example in Toronto is also the, the Metrolinx project, which... Um, the Eglinton Crosstown, they're actually negotiating 10% of workers to be hired who face a number of barriers to employment. So if you think about retrofitting 100% of buildings by 2050, there's a huge opportunity for us to really leverage that and think about how do we you know, maximize the type of benefits that pe- ordinary people can see on a day-to-day basis. And, I, and I, what, I, what I love about that is it also it, – it's a self-fulfilling – it's not self-fulfilling prophecy, but it's it, it sort of it, – it helps itself. It, it's a Self-propagating. Self-propagating, yeah. Yeah, in that you know, that you're providing people with good work and good jobs. You actually free up more space in these now renovated, uh, renovated uh, public housing, uh, and you can sort of it makes the whole it makes the city more livable for everyone, really. Um, and so you, you referenced earlier the the, the soap opera, uh, shall we say, of um, uh, of of our city council, which I'm, I imagine is probably true everywhere. Who knows? Uh, if you if you live in a, in a in a city in which has a very normal and not soap opery. Uh, uh, City uh, Council, please let us know. Well, we did. Uh, we we did hear. set the stage, if you will, to at least be seen as such with our previous mayor. Right. That, yeah, that is true. Yeah, there you go. Um, and and you know, we did reference earlier that uh, that we get some weird medicines from Nottingham, the UK. So Nottingham, UK, let us know if you uh, mm-hmm. if you have a normal functioning um, city council. Um, but uh, but on that front. Um, We've passed it, right? So, like, it, it, it was one, what's interesting is it's one of the things where it's 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 sound. We all of the media headlines might be positive, but the underlying reality is actually much more stark. So you can sort of where do, where does it sit now? Sure. So I think we've seen sort of this trend, a lot of media are picking up on it, where council passes these bold plans, and then when it comes time to implementing it funding is missing. So we've seen that with the poverty reduction strategy is one example, and we fear that that's what's going to happen with the climate plan as well. And they've sort of set the stage for that to happen at council. Um, in 2017, they were actually required when the, the first um, half of the plan leading up to 2020 was passed to develop business cases, which would say, you know, where would we get the most reductions for the money invested? Um and then this time around, when they were passing the plan again, they requested more business cases be developed. <laughs> so n- we're asking staff to now do the same work over again. And they said the reason for this is we really need to understand uh, what we're investing our money in and where we can have the greatest impact. Where this is really frustrating is, is one, it could, you know, Give them the reason to say, here's uh, this is all the money we have, so we're not going to invest in all of the actions that we need to. Um, but additionally, it means that the co-benefits piece sort of gets pushed to the side because they're like, oh, it's more about where you get the most reductions for dollar invested. And then, I mean, for people who are listening, sometimes climate action, you're like, oh, it's a lot of money to be invested. How much is it going to cost? And they said, okay, for 2018, we're looking at $6.7 million. But to put that into perspective – 
that's less than the cost of a token per resident in Toronto, <laughs> right? So when you put that in there, would we like, all okay. donate a single subway token to <laughs> have a, a noticeably better city? <laughs> Especially given we're going to have a fun like a freeze apparently for this year on the cost of like transit. But uh, it's interesting. I just feel like we have to think about what the costs of climate change are. And I mean, in Toronto alone, look at how much flooding we've had this year, yeah. right? So there's direct impacts to businesses and people who have their homes flooded. And one thing we often refer to is um, the 2013 ice storm and the floods in the mm-hmm. summer of July. Those two events alone cost over a billion dollars in one go. Yeah. Well, right? the, the, uh, even just the flooding uh, in the Toronto Islands this year cost the city $5 million. Imagine uh, okay. the $5 million, move it uh, to maybe not having the next flood, uh, and we can actually have this conversation. Almost as bad. It's cost me all my beach time so far this summer. Right. Uh, $5 million your beach time equal, I think. They're, they're rough. They're rough. Yeah. May, I, may I jump Please in the question quickly? Uh, so one of, the, one of the – I have three questions. I'll, I'm only going to ask you one. So I'm just, that's just sort of how my brain works. Uh, uh, is it so? One of the, I'm interested in several things. One of the things I want to know is um, during this process. So something that we talk a little bit on the show is how there's different types of policy people and how sort of like academic or like you know rank and file. I, I you know I work in an office and we write we do research and write papers. Policy people are very very different than politicians who are policy people, but they're policy people in a different way, <laughs> shall we say? I'm being very polite to politicians right now. Uh, so one of the things I'm very curious about is, of course, because I'm fully aware that uh, – and and as is most of our audience that, – that there are tons and tons of benefits. The business case for it is much, much stronger than most people think it is, vastly stronger. Right. <laughs> in some cases, completely pay for itself plus – Stronger, not in all cases, but in some cases. So, what I'm very curious is about as you're as you're taking the yourself and, and other folks and from wide range of organizations, not just T, uh, who are deeply immersed in this this information and therefore this knowledge that the case is actually much much better than most people think it is. Um, how have you found these interactions with actual politicians and and members of the council uh, as far as their skepticism, winning them over, their shock at wow. Like I almost wondered, and this sort of made me decide that that was one of the the one of the three questions that I would decide to actually ask you was was I was wondering how much of that was them going it can't really be that good we better we ask them to check it again yeah. uh, what is your sense of that and if you can just comment on that topic generally sure I think there is a lot of disbelief right and I think there's sort of these two prongs you have the people who are the choir and there's no point preaching to them and I think we're sitting here <laughs> as, right so we understand it but the science isn't going to win people over and that's the same case for counselors who aren't convinced. So so showing them even these benefits, they're like, oh, really? But how much money is it going to cost us? That's what they always will come back to. So I think for me, I'm like, how we actually mobilize support is by getting people to to call their counselors to actually hold them accountable and say, listen, we know that this will create jobs. We know that this is going to mean that transit's more expanded and it makes me easier for me on a day-to-day basis to get around. It's going to improve my air quality. So I think we have to win people over on the values and like – what the concrete benefits are to them in order to have an impact on council. Having, um, you know, organizers always go to counselors doesn't actually work. And and it's unfortunate, but in, from their perspective, they have to be held accountable by their residents. So we will, as part of my job, we will meet with counselors. We will definitely present the facts to them. But I think what I've learned from my experience of working on climate change work is it's not the facts that win people over, mm-hmm. right? You need to actually appeal to the things that matter to them. So leading with climate change, even with a counselor or a resident um, doesn't work actually. So think about you know if you're talking to your neighbor or your counselor, think about what's gonna what's gonna make the compelling argument on a values basis. So uh, often if we're talking about my ride, like I I live in Scarborough, so my commute 
is over two hours. So, you know, those are the types of things where a lot of people find it very relatable, but also people who don't typically think about climate change as one of their priority issues. Because right. I think those are the people we need to get on board. Same with counselors, the people who don't think it's a priority. We have to show them that the solutions, the benefits, all these things are so great that it's like, why wouldn't you invest in this? Yeah. Um, and, and, and so and so with that in mind, with that sort of trying to win that uh, win that fight, uh, especially given that I believe that council has basically planned to freeze their budget in 2018, yep. um, which at some sense is already making everyone feel like with because a budget freeze as, as it, with inflation is actually basically accepting that it's, it's, a, it's a cut. You know, there's one point something percent that of your money will go less far each year. And so to freeze your budget, not even a, not even with the rate of inflation is to actually cut about one point five percent of things. Right, and so any project looking to get funding uh, is going to be fighting from something else. You know, you can't you can't just make money appear out of nowhere, um, at least not within this type of budget. Um, and so, and so, where do we sort of? What's the next step? How do we how do we help uh, you know help help T or help the general movement uh, to push this as a priority to actually get um, you know to actually get. The, uh, either money found from somewhere, or for them to sort of back off, maybe on this budget freeze, or you know, I, I my bias now, maybe think about revenue tools. I don't know, maybe just <laughs> think about the possibility of making more money instead of just cutting everything. Uh, it's, sad. Um, it's sad that that feels like a dream. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's like we don't we can't keep cutting things. We're not going to cut anything, but also we refuse to make any more money. Okay, all right. Um, but uh, how can we support you? Is there a question? So I think we've really changed our strategy around this as well because we realized that very quickly social justice uh, activists were being pitted against climate activists when it came to budget time. And we're like, this is not the way to move forward because we know these are all intersectional issues. So we've changed our approach. We're really active with um, working with a number of uh, different coalitions like the Commitment to Community, which is really focused on poverty reduction at council. Um, And what people can do to support is actually, you know, sign up, learn about what's going on. Um, there will be a series of budget town halls that are happening at the end of the year. So there's really ways that people can go and learn more. Um, but I think there's a lot that we can do together, uh, not just as climate activists, but as a community broader um, to have an influence overall. And we shouldn't just settle for, OK, I want my one plan passed. Mm-hmm. That's what's, you know, we're pitted against each other and it doesn't get us anywhere. So we really have to broaden the strategy. And I think one of the things I found really successful last time around was talking about shelters and pools and those closures as a climate change issue. Because I'm like, yeah. So if you think about it, you're like, um, the people who are most vulnerable need like access to cooling centers, pools, and homeless shelters. And if you're closing those services, it's going to actually impact people more. If you think about the heat we've had this summer or the extreme and unpredictable colds that we have in the winter, these are a result of climate change. So sort of broadening how we talk to people and using those concrete things is helping us as well. Amazing. That makes me very happy to may, may, very happy to hear. Uh, well, just quickly, uh, the, one of the reasons that makes me so happy to hear specifically that last piece was the idea that you know we've uh, Stefan and I have had even disagreements among uh, soft disagreements, but disagreements among him and I as well about sort of how critical to be of the sort of end of the environment uh, spectrum that says you know we need to you know take what we can get, stop saying no to everything. Uh, you know I won't name anyone, but you know who I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> As far as that sort of thing, um, you know, as far as how to how to take that. But my thing is, yes, we do need to compromise. But what we should be compromising is, as you, as you just finished saying, and I'm so happy to hear other people at least conceptually agreeing with the idea that no, 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 where the compromise needs to happen is this affects all of us. Right. So people who are fighting on uh, uh, 
environmental racism or housing or, or drug issues or any of these other things. Those are the people that we need to be going and making deals with and saying, look, I understand, you know, their housing issue is a climate change. These are all issues. Yes. So instead of compromising with the oil companies, let's compromise and agree that we're all going to help each other on stuff where we all agree, right? So if there's an, if there's a housing element to climate change, then let's help that. Let's agree to team up on that and grow the, you know, scare quotes here, army, if you will, yeah. rather than lowering our expectations because we, they are all committed. And one of the people who I think are figuring this out the quickest because they've been forced to, uh, even though maybe they may have been had the most to learn in the first place, I will freely admit, of this sort of overlap are the sort of environment folks because they've hit this wall now of even some of their own saying, hey, cool it, even though the, ironically, even though the science is telling us we don't have time and they're sort of looking around for what else to do and going, oh, wait, we have all these other people who, are we, who we all agree with and we're just not communicating, we're not cooperating. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, again, that that's a very loaded topic, I understand, and you know, forgive me um, to, to close on it, um, but, but I think it's a conversation that needs to happen. There's a lot more agreement already on people who are almost in complete ideological agreement and definitely agree on outcomes who, who really haven't capitalized their ability to sort of cooperate, I think. The organizations, not the individuals involved. Let me be clear about what I mean by that. Uh, but yeah, I just wanted to stick that in. Yeah, and uh, just as uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and can you give a chance for anyone who wants to sort of learn more or, or reach out to you guys and, and help you out? Uh, where can they find more information about uh, about uh, UNT and your guys' work? Great. Um, so we are online. Um, so I would recommend visiting our website. So it's the Toronto Environmental Alliance and it's www torontoenvironment.org org um, and we're active on social media so stay tuned there's always lots of ways to get involved and learn more about how you can have an impact amazing thanks so much great thanks all right we'll uh, thank you as well and we're now going to go to our second and final music break Megan what are we gonna all right we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very, very, very appreciated community radio partners all across the country and now internationally as well, as well, our uh, podcast listeners who will be treated to a bonus show uh, that I think I've decided, but I'll, I'll once I'm for sure I've decided. Once I'm for sure I have a good thought about it, I'll tell you what that is. All right. uh, that'll be up. If you want to hear the bonus show, we always have a good time on the bonus show. Still usually quite serious topics. Uh, we just, they're a little bit more informal. They occasionally involve some colorful language, uh, if that's appealing to you at all. You know, we don't overdo it, but you know, we're free to use slightly more colorful language and express ourselves more fully. Uh, as well, we also talk about things that don't always make it onto the main show because they seem maybe slightly more frivolous, even though I have something I want to say about them or whatnot. So the reason I, I doing an extended promotion for the bonus show today is that normally this Stefan would have been a bonus show topic. It's ripe for bonus show topic mess, but I think it's just a little bit too poignant to to push on to the to the bonus show. I think it's too relevant. Uh, to pass up. So uh, I told you I wanted to talk about this in the in the final section of the show here. I, I neglected to ask you if you'd seen it. So are you, are you familiar with what the, with the topic today about the you heard about the Justin True article? Yes. Did you read the uh, did you hear about the critique of it? Yes. Per se? Okay. Yeah. So for the audience who didn't essentially Justin Trudeau, I actually didn't read the, the Rolling Stone article because I was sort of like ugh was my response to seeing it. <laughs> uh, so I never read it. Uh, but I'm, I what I did read was a press progress um, article here uh, called this Justin Trudeau quote in the new Rolling Stone article is pretty weird and disturbing and weird and disturbing, I believe is, is both accurate and an understatement. Um, so, so the reason I want to talk about this is not because, Oh, look, here's a way to criticize Trudeau because honestly, if people would, people would be forgiven uh, for thinking so, even though they'd be wrong that I just take just pot shots at Justin Trudeau for no reason. I want him to be a good prime minister. He's our prime minister. And arguably he's more in favor of things that I like than a lot of the alternatives. So that being said, uh, you know, I have a lot to say that's critical about him, but at the same point, you know, a, it could be worse. It could, 
it could be uh we could have trump hmm. uh arguably which would be is sort of the theme of the article um but there's still also unfortunately and this is something I, that i think is very very on top uh, important to talk about and essentially my thesis here and so i'm going to outline my thesis and then i'm going to go back to the article here um now that you know what i'm talking about to sort of to flush it out a little bit. So part of my thesis here is that one of the things that, that has been well noted um, by anyone other than Breitbart or Fox News um, is that, you know, there's, there's a large degree of a sycophant uh, idolatry of Donald Trump. Most of the mass majority of his supporters who get any airtime or get any press, the ones that we see, the ones that we talk to, the ones that make it onto TV, uh, who aren't actually paid spokespeople, the, the people who are interviewed, anyone that, that, is given access to on a larger stage. It is a very strong trend. I'll, I'll put it as mildly as I can, but a lot of them are very, very weak on specifics about what they know about him. It's largely, a, it appears to largely be a cult of personality and they like the things that he's saying. They're not too concerned about. And if you start talking about details, they go, ah, you're just, it's fake news. Or like they don't want to hear it. Right. It's, he's created a cult of personality. Uh, which is very, very creepy. Uh, what my argument is today, my thesis is today, is that that although they are different politicians, true, although they un, almost unquestionably have different levels of morality, I think that's also true, um, there is a very disturbing trend of a cult of personality around our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. And so my, I, as I move forward here, I want to be very clear that I'm not saying they're the same people. I'm not saying that they believe in the same things. I'm saying that they are largely floated and kept to the degree popular that they are far more on their cult of personality and the marketing that they've been able to develop around who they are as a person theoretically than, the, than their policies or rather than who they are in reality. So I don't feel like I have to explain to our audience and I, therefore I won't bother uh, unless a comparison is relevant. My argument about how this applies to Donald Trump, most of our listeners probably accept that. If they don't, we'll talk about it another time or you can email me. Actually, don't. I'm not going to reply to you if you email <laughs> me about that, frankly. Um, but, you know, that's not, that's, that's not what we're talking about today. We're assuming everyone at least tentatively agrees with that. My argument for this is that to go through some of the details here. So what Justin Trudeau did is he, there was a very famous boxing uh, and I'm going to skim over a lot of the details. Again, you can read the article for yourself for the names, specific, a lot of the specific names and things. Um, but there was a, a sort of famous uh, a boxing match um, that Trudeau did that was largely staged. And it was, you know, sort of very playful and, Oh, look how sporty he is. Look how cute he is. Look at his little muscles uh, and his cute little hat or whatever he was wearing. Um, and it was with a uh, conservative Senator Patrick uh, Brazo. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure how that says his uh, last name. I think it's right. And, um, and, and so he, so he was asked about this and he was quite clear. And so this is during the interview uh, for Rolling Stone. This is during an interview and, and it specifically describes his mischievous smile uh, when asked about how the, how much of the boxing match had been played. And he quite just quite fairly says with a big smile on his face, he thinks this is funny. This isn't like some slip or somebody hacked their email and Oh shoot. It turns out that in secret we had different thoughts. No, no he didn't. He thinks this is perfectly lovely. He thinks this is cute uh, to say that it wasn't random. I wanted someone who would be a good foil which is a good opponent uh, for people who aren't familiar with that usage. It's not super common these days. A foil essentially in this context means uh, someone who will appear to be cartoonishly villainous uh, as to opposite. So it's sort of saying that they they're fulfilling an archetype that would be not just a nemesis, but my nemesis uh, is the usage there. And he used that word. This is Trudeau's quote. I'll say it again. I wanted someone who would be a good foil. And we stumbled upon a scrappy tough guy Senator from an indigenous community. He fit the bill. It was very nice counterpoint. 
That is a direct quote said with a mischievous smile by our prime minister. It was the right kind of narrative. It was the right kind of story to tell, or it was rather, it was the story to tell. This was all very done. Uh, so this was uh, done. You could say, well, okay, you know, I have to really stretch it, but there, I mean, there's a, if boy, if you really wanted to, you could maybe squirrel out of that one. Maybe you'd have to squirrel pretty hard. Uh, but here's where I think it gets really, really nasty. And this is where Stefan, I'll break for you to make a comment here. Um, so, so, of course, uh, a lot of people read this and, and uh, Pam Palmer, uh, of course, uh, some very respected uh, Canadian and indigenous woman uh, uh, said, she, uh, you know, I was shocked to read this coming from someone who's been speaking about reconciliation and repairing relationships. Uh, she's the associate professor ch- uh, chair of in- indigenous governance at Ryerson. Um, and quite a, a few other people's had uh, not very pleasant things to say, I think quite fairly. Uh, but here's the really nasty part, Stefan. And, and this is what I'll let you, where I'll let you jump in. This is the thing that really, so the rest of it was super uncomfortable because you're sort of thing like where someone you didn't think was racist starts blurting out a bunch of stuff and you're like, Whoa, okay. That sounds bad, but this is, seems really out of character for you. So there's, there's a chance I'm reading this wrong. That's sort of, that was sort of my reaction to the first part. Here's where it gets super gross. There was an agreement, a side bet, uh, between him and Brizzo, wherein Trudeau suggested the loser get a haircut. Doesn't seem too bad. There's been some joking things about you know putting the other team's flag between Toronto, uh, Toronto and Montreal. I believe it was uh, the mayor's always the mayor's. It's a it's, there's a fun thing. It's yeah. fun. We're just having fun. Here's the thing: wherein Trudeau suggested the loser gets a haircut, explaining the haircut. Trudeau explains, so he is fully aware and explaining this to the interviewer. The cutting of hair has a cultural significance for First Nations people and proposed it because it was a sign of shame. This is a gross human being who's doing and saying despicable things. I will leave it there. Stephen Connor. Um, I, I, think what, I think what I find interesting about uh, the, the combination you're making of this, um, of the two sides, um, is that or of the of sort of of what of what you know the comparison here between Trump and uh, Trump and Trudeau, um, because is that is that the the cult of personality uh, or the or the way that sort of the, that they appeal are, are are similar in a way in that what's what is interesting about Trudeau specifically is that I think he is he's sort of how Canada wants to see itself. Or, or the way the cult of personality impacts Trudeau's narrative is how Canada wants to see itself, right? You know, th- th- that Trudeau can say platitudes about, uh, about accepting refugees, um, uh, after Trump says something else, uh, and yet we get nothing, um, and yet we get nothing else about, um, uh, yet no actual policy to protect more refugees coming into this country. Uh, you know, that we can talk, that Trudeau can talk about reconciliation and talk about this sort of thing and get no, um, and get no real action, uh, helping our indigenous peoples. And, 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 and I think that, that we, we, Canadians buy into this narrative because they want to see this as Canada. Uh, and it reflects back to the very beginning of what we were talking about, the, 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 in the same way that Canada wants to see itself as a, as a peacekeeping nation while sending these sort of, these extractive industries into everywhere everywhere to to cause similar harm you know these are these are it's a very similar sort of narrative here in that you know the number of fawning uh the number of fawning articles written about trudeau in in the united states media is is really just an indication of what 
the people are trying to do. Right? The indication of the amount, the amount of fawning media that Trudeau gets in the states is really just the American, uh, the American, the media trying to be like, look, other countries are okay, um, and it and very much glances over the sort of the really you know the really disturbing piece. I was in, you know I was in I was in I was in New York a couple weeks ago, um, and I was talking to a woman who was. Um, Who's, who's from the Netherlands, and her comment was, it really seems like Canada's really proud of their prime minister. Uh, it really seems like you guys are, like, yeah, stoked about it. And I was like, hmm, mm, I can see why you would see that, but like there's but like and then i sort of slowly listed all of the different ways that sort of you know you know reneging on all of the different promises he had and and and, and, and anyway sort of you know, any deeper look sort of in, in implies and i think that that to me is the central question here the central question that i have is how can we as a nation shift our understanding of our of our of our of ourselves and 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 find a way to actually and authentically move towards reconciliation move towards true respect of, of, of indigenous cultures and true respect of treaty rights like these are the things that we're sort of that and all of these things we can keep sort of we can keep talking about our socks we can keep talking about how cool our socks are and saying all the right things um or we can hold our leaders to account and hold our you know hold our frilly socked feet to the fire um and 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 actually demand uh true and and better um uh, representation that, that 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 does not have this sort of you know that sort of that sort of rotting underbelly, right? And and I think that comments like this and and the, the lack of action are are indicative of this sort of rotting underbelly that I that I wish we could find a way to, um, you know, truly uh, look look at. We need like for, as a as a country, we have to first see it, we have to see it and acknowledge it, and then we can start actually trying to trying to improve on it. Um, and I think a lot of the sort of fawning that we see it comes from the sort of sense of that we're still trying to look away, we're still trying to look away. And the more times we can look at someone's you know fancy socks or 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 surprise wedding uh, or just going for a run shirtless for no reason, we swear all of these things are ways for us to sort of ignore the sort of the the, the serious concerns that we need to be actually addressing. Yeah. So uh, we're basically in the show. We actually have two minutes left. I'm going to, so I basically decided, and this may be a very, very short uh, conversation, but based on the, with this topic, sort of with like resistance of, you know, the types of folks that have been spreading here in in Canada, I think I'd I'd like to touch a little bit on tactics of resistance with the context to the point of uh, Antifa, if you will, versus the alt-right and just make a brief comment on that. That will be our bonus show. The last minute here, I'm actually just going to play this. It's a 40 second clip. It was embedded on the article. You can watch it yourself. We're going to play it here on the air, which is, which is the actual quote. Uh, Pat uh, sent me an email. He said, "Let's make it. Uh, send me a tweet. Uh, let's make it interesting. Let's put uh, put some uh, you know so, some pride on the on the line. The, the loser will wear a uh, uh, the opposing party's uh, jersey for for a day or for a week." I said, "Okay, you know that's that's something we can do, but it doesn't quite seem to the level of you know the the event we're doing. I mean, any after any playoff game, you have an opposing mayor wearing a jersey." So I said, "You know, we're both known for our long hair on the hill." Uh, Let's let's say the loser gets a haircut. Um, he resisted back a little bit, you know, pointing out that hair has a cultural significance for First Nations peoples. And I said, uh, I know that's why I proposed it. When a warrior cuts his hair, it's a sign of shame. So it's a uh, it's very apropos. And that's it for the Green Majority. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's uh, we'll leave it there this week. Thanks for listening. Uh, and just again, I'm not saying Trump is Trudeau. I'm just saying we've got to take those rose-colored goggles off. Uh, he may not be what you think he is. Uh, all that's it for the main show this week. Thank you for listening to the Green Majority. We'll be back with a bonus show on the podcast, which you can get at greenmajority.ca. Thank you very much to Stefan for mostly hosting today and, of course, our guest. And to you, the listener, have a good Green Week. <laughs>